0: Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today is Andrew Cole, Head of Multi-Asset at Pictet Asset Management. Increasing trade tensions, Brexit, and an uncertain economic outlook are just some of the threats investors face. As a result, there's an increasing need to find ways to mitigate potential downside, such as adding funds which aim to mitigate downside to your portfolio. Andrew, You run funds including FP Day Multi-Asset Portfolio, a targeted absolute return fund which aims for positive return in excess of three-month sterling LIBOR over 12-month rolling periods. How do you try to achieve positive returns, in particular during uncertain periods such as just now, when markets face a number of threats?
1: Look, we're long-only. We're asset allocators. We're prepared to be active. And we're prepared to make meaningful changes in our asset allocation. One, to capture returns uh, as and when we think they're available. Um, But secondly, you know, we have an asymmetric view about risk is that you want to avoid sharp drawdowns. And so we are prepared to, you know, cut risk, hold cash at times of market stress um, with a desire of, you know, trying to defend capital. Um, we recognize that you know, one disastrous year destroys several years of growth. And you know the secret to long-run investing, of course, is compounding returns. So, um, of course, if your portfolio halves, you've got to double to get back to where you started. So it's pretty helpful in the long run if you don't let that happen. So, look, in short, we'll make meaningful changes to our asset allocation.
0: Okay, now you said you long only, so presumably you don't short. But do you use any other derivatives or hedge fund style techniques to try to maintain positive returns?
1: We're not financial engineers, so we don't utilise leverage. We don't do relative value. You know, for us, that means you've got to get two things right at the same time and Frankly, my, my lifetime, you know, getting one thing right is, uh, difficult enough. Um, but do we, do we use derivatives? Look, I think, you know, from time to time. And I think, you know, this year has been, you know, one of those years when we have used derivatives, principally call or put options. Uh, because, you know, whilst we all think it's an uncertain world, actually the market pricing of volatility has been extraordinarily low. So being able to own a call, i.e., give me the upside and limit my downside risk to markets has been a particularly cheap function to, to put into portfolios this year and, and we've used that um, to our advantage and certainly during the summer that has helped us you know keep our return profile more stable during a period of you know what's been you know a more volatile period for for stock markets in particular
0: Now, some of our listeners uh, may not be familiar with what put and call options are. Can can you just briefly explain what they are and how they, you know, how they work and benefit?
1: Uh, absolutely. So, you know, if we take, you know, the UK market and, you know, clearly you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, but actually the market's pricing of how volatile, the UK stock market is going to be is largely spent most of this year at multi-year lows. And that what that allows us to do is to say is to pay a very small premium that if the market were to rise, let's say, one percent, then over and above that, we will have exposure to the market. But should the market fall, all we're losing is the small amount of insurance premium that we've paid to 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 capture that upside, and yeah, you know, and 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 the inverse would be true for a put. So you thought the market was going to go down, and you wanted to protect against equities you might have. Um, I mean, that's certainly the way we would play it, rather than having a net short exposure to the market. And so you can pay um, what have been quite small premiums this year in order to defend your portfolio to downside risks.
0: FP. Picked a multi-asset portfolio launched in 2015. Have you managed to achieve positive returns over rolling 12 month periods since this launch date?
1: Um, certainly, yeah. We, we, we've we done more than that. I mean, our, our real objective, if you like, is to, to grow the real value of the fund. Mm. Um, you know, we believe that most savers invest to grow the real value of uh, their wealth. So, um, we really want to see um, a, a rate of return over above inflation. Um, and we've certainly achieved that over the last five years.
0: Over that period, I mean, what what has detracted from returns? What would be examples of things that detracted?
1: Oh well, you you know you can pick any particular given mm. period. Um, um, you know clearly, bonds by and large, have generally been helpful. Equity exposure, well, you know, it's been a case of being exposed to the right places. Um you know, the US market and technology over that five year period has tended to outperform you know, a growth style of equity investing has certainly over the last two or three years significantly outperformed I just want to own cheap value stocks. Mm. Um and so, you know, avoiding you know, energy, you know, financials, um, within, you know, our equity market exposure has been, you know, incredibly helpful. Um, but as I said at the outset, look, um, we will make meaningful changes, um, to our portfolio because at any moment in time, um, we seek to have more money invested in what we think are going to be the best performing assets. And if we don't like something, we, our best not to own it. So, um, you know, if we look at our history of our asset allocation over the last five years, um, you know, our equity weight, if you like, and you know, if you want to think about that as a measure of risk, has varied from, you know, 70% in equities down to a low of, you know, 10 to 15%. Mm. So, um, you know, do we get it right all of the time? No, but we try and get it right, you know, more often than not. And, you know, over the period that that served us well.
0: Mm. What would be an example of what you haven't got right?
1: What would be an example? Well, look, we've we've struggled um, with European equities. Um, we haven't had the the greatest uh, track record at getting involved in in Europe. And that said, you know, we've got more exposure to Europe today than mm. we've had for a long while. Um, and and I think that's partly because European economic growth has, you know, perhaps persistently disappointed. But from a more structural perspective, European investors, regardless of how cheap European equities might look relative to European bonds, seem very reluctant buyers. And, you know, to some extent, perhaps that's been, you know, the regulatory backdrop. Uh, and, and that's caught us on the hop, you know, one or two times. But, you know, we've had plenty of successes the other side of that. In, in, you know, such as things not being frightened of owning what have at the time seemed to be, you know, relatively expensive technology stocks, Mm. but recognizing that actually their earnings are going to surprise positively and the market will respond by pushing up valuations higher from time to time.
0: Okay. Now, the US, um, I suppose it came out a couple of days ago, uh, said it may impose tariffs on European Union goods. Which I suppose could ignite another trade war, and how serious a threat is this to markets, and what can investors do to mitigate any possible risks?
1: Um, our stance on um, certainly U.S. trade, um, particularly with China, I think is going to be, you know, something that uh, as investors we're going to have to learn to live with, you know, for the foreseeable future. And I, I would liken it. Um, To sort of the new Cold War and we can go into why if you you want to. I mean, Mm -hmm. are we seeing some Mm -hmm. spillover into Europe? Mm. Yes, I think it's a sign of the times that you know, an increase in sort of populism um, and that sort of political rhetoric is that, you know, regimes are starting to think about their local electorates and their local workforce to a, a much greater extent than we've seen in the past and Um, You know, Donald Trump and the United States, Mm. um, you know, are part of that. You know, actually, the EU is less of a free trade group um, outside of itself um, than, you know, we might, you know, be disposed to think. Um, So, look, uh, I think, you know, trade friction um, is something that we should get used to. I think it is... Um, a threat to corporate profit margins if you like you know we're throwing some sand in the engine of, of of global trade and that creates some friction and I think will create some extra costs which I think the corporate sector is going to bear and that that is a threat to record high margins mm. but look let's never underestimate you know the ability of the corporate sector to respond uh, to a changing environment. And, you know, we seek to do that. And whilst we've not necessarily thought about the immediate impacts of, you know, the European angle on this, um, we, when it, thinking about US-China trade, um, you know, look, we like some of the other South Asian um, markets where, you know, those trade, that trade is being relocated. So we particularly like, you know, the banks, in, you know, the Philippines, Thailand, um, Malaysia, um, I think will be immediate beneficiaries of, you know, that repositioning of trade routes and uh, and that supply chain. So, yeah, yeah, that's how we think about it.
0: Okay. And um, just from the European perspective, um, you know, is there any areas to avoid or, you know, kind of favour? Is it was a bit early to say, because obviously... If- uh, that, that dispute is a much earlier trade than the US China trade dispute?
1: Um, look, I, I think a, a lot of this is probably about autos and, mm. uh, and cars. Um, and there, you know, we've seen, you know, a complete collapse in, you know, auto sales over, you know, the last 12 to 18 months. Is that cyclical? Is it structural? I think only time will tell. You know, for your listeners that are old enough to remember the sort of VHS Betamax problem of which technology do I go? You know, this is a reasonably big ticket item. I think that's exactly where the the car industry is today. The the Mm. consumer sits there and says, "Well, you know, do I go electric? Do I go hybrid? I'm probably less inclined to go diesel. Mm. Should I go petrol still? Actually, you know, if I don't want to buy the wrong technology." I'm going to sit on my hands for a while. And I think that's, to some extent, what the car industry is suffering from. And, um, you know, time will tell. But my suspicion is that this will work its way out at the system quicker than uh, we might imagine. Um, But I think, you know, trade right now is autos. um, You know, it's sentimental to uh, the U.S. workforce. Um and you know you've clearly seen the ramifications in Germany where you know the manufacturing data and the trade data has been particularly poor and we associate Germany clearly with you know car manufacture.
0: Mm. Now we've um, been talking, I suppose, probably to a certain extent about equities. Um, but these companies also issue bonds. So, I mean, could such a trade war between the US and Europe, if it develops um, in a, an unpleasant way, have a negative effect on European bonds?
1: Um, well, bonds have got all sorts of headwinds. Um, so, if we think about um, sovereign government bonds, I mean, we, you know, we do live in a, a period of financial repression um, where actually to own a government bond today almost ensures that you will become poorer, i.e. your prospective return is going to be below the rate of inflation. Um, and in fact, I was doing the arithmetic you know, just yesterday that actually to buy a 10-year gilt today and expect to get a return over and above inflation, um, the, the sort of 0.7 yield you get today, you will need the yield on that. Um, Security to be minus 1.6 in five years' time. Now, that strikes me as pretty pretty unlikely. Um, And so, you know, that's an immediate headwind for bonds. You know, they're going to make me poorer. Now, so what has everybody done? You know, that you've seen a flight into corporate bonds, both investment grade and high yield, where the amount of extra yield you get for taking that credit risk has fallen dramatically over the last five years. And if there's an asset class that we think is you know, expensive and we want to avoid owning today, it has been, you know, it is corporate bonds where, you know, actually the quality of the bond, i.e. the amount of leverage, the indebtedness of the company that you're investing in is probably higher. And therefore the risks of a default or that bond going bad are underestimated in the extra yield you're getting. So, um, look, I, you know, by and large, there's... Something like, you know, 17 trillion bonds out there now with yields less than zero. If you're planning on, you know, growing the real value of your wealth, why would you want to own them? Um, you know, whereas as I say, it's, a, it's a, a period of financial repression where, to some extent, you know, the regulators, certainly for life companies and DB pension schemes, kind of force investors into uh, these uneconomic um, investments. But it's a way in which wealth is redistributed.
0: Okay. Now, on that note, um, you said in a recent commentary that you do favour bonds which offer positive real yields from issuers based where central banks have room to cut further. What areas are these and what types of bonds are they? So uh,
1: what we're largely talking about here are inflation-linked bonds, by and large, generally. Mm. Um, And so anybody who looks at the inflation-linked um, gilt market, for instance, in the UK, we'll see that yields are, you know, significantly negative, you know, minus one and a half to minus two and a half, i.e. that's the amount by which you are going to get poorer in real terms. When we look at the United States, um, actually those real yields are positive. So um, for us, that seems a pretty attractive place to be relative. In places like Australia you know we 've seen um, you know expected inflation uh, falling. We thought that the central bank had more room to cut real yields and so certainly, for much of this year, um, our focus in owning government bonds has been in those inflation linked bonds in the United States and actually in australia pre- been prepared to own conventional government bonds
0: mm. Do you invest in these directly or do you invest them via other funds?
1: Um, Our fund has the ability. I mean, it has Mm. complete open architecture. Um, Certainly when it comes to government securities, we try to be fairly focused in what we own. So we'll pick individual bonds and individual securities um, and and hold them that way. Um, And then think about whether we want to have the currency exposure or not. Um, And if we don't, we'll hedge that currency exposure back into pounds.
0: Okay, now you recently cut exposure to emerging markets, local currency debt, despite the fact that these types of bonds offer attractive yields. Why
1: because I think we're in a an environment where you know we we probably you know see a bit more risk around you know people wanting to de risk and and I think that probably sends the dollar higher
0: hmm.
1: um, and a strengthening dollar puts. Uh, an immediate strain, particularly on emerging market central banks. You know, they find an environment where the dollar is weakening and where they try and peg their currencies uh, a much easier environment uh, with which to to run their own monetary policy. Um, A strengthening dollar, I think, means that there's a big headwind for emerging market central banks, by and large, to be able to cut rates, to lower real yields. And so, um, look, from a strategic perspective – we think they're attractive but right now technically as i said you know we stand aside and and wait for better value and a, and a better opportunity
0: talking of um i guess risks or threats going ahead um what would you say are the other sort of like main ones and um how have you positioned the fund to mitigate them um
1: look there are always threats mm. there are always risks right you know and if um as an investor, and you wake up on the day and you think, well, this is great. There's nothing to worry about. You should probably actually sell everything. So, look, the, yeah, the trade war, I think, is kind of known. Could it escalate? Yeah, well, look, it could. But um, I think you know, most parties recognize that there'll be quite a lot of jawboning. And I think the market recognizes it. Clearly, Brexit throws in some uncertainty, yeah, less than – perhaps the market perceives, in my opinion. I think the most immediate threat is that clearly we've seen slowing economic activity, particularly in the manufacturing sector. And so, you know, when we look at our economic indicators, our leading indicators of economic growth have been slowing. Um, but this is all up until this point been largely down to manufacturing um, actually the consumer sentiment and jobs market has remained fairly buoyant uh, the big risk uh, from here is that actually concerns within the manufacturing concerns with companies not willing to invest means that actually they you know, go the other way and at the margins start shedding labor and that we see you know real income gains or real wage growth dissipate you know a, a slight rise perhaps in the unemployment and that would damage consumer sentiment and consumption and if that were to happen i think you know there are you know much greater sort of downside risks and then we would we're much more likely to be talking about a recessionary scenario and we kind of know what recessions do to corporate profits they tend to hit them fairly painfully so um that's that i would say is is the biggest risk right here and now um and it's not just one that you know the UK suffers from it's it's pretty much a global mm. phenomenon
0: okay now I've been talking lots about equities and bonds but FP picked in multi-asset portfolio uh, like the name implies multi-asset funds so what other assets do you invest in to mitigate downside
1: well look we're not frightened of owning cash um, it doesn't always fulfill as I say our real return objective. Um, but it does give you the option to buy things, you know, as and when they cheapen up and you think the returns are there. So, you know, today you, we're pretty much at, you know, 30% cash. Um, what else do we own in the portfolio? Well, we have some gold. Um, you know, as I said, I think we're in a period of financial repression where actually most central banks would like to try and engineer some inflation. That looks pretty difficult, where the real return on cash is, you know, negative and um you know, if you're going to make your interest rate negative, then actually gold looks like a high-yielder when it yields zero. Um, So we have some gold. Um, um, And outside of that, I mean, I think we're attracted to real assets that have other contracted cash flows associated with them. So, um, you know, for a while and, you know, we've owned aircraft leases where we think, you know, we get the lease and we think, you know, a bit of inflation, the depreciation rate on, on your plane – um is attractive and, and more recently in the last year, despite all the concerns about um global trade, um actually, you know, owning ships and commercial ships, particularly freight, have become particularly attractive. And some of that is technology because of, you know, new regulation on emissions. And the other thing is that actually in a slower global trade, um what you tend to find is that um, merchants tend to move their ships more slowly. And um, if you think about it, if you're moving ships more slowly, you actually need more ships. Um, so that's been you know, another sort of um, diversifier, stable contractual income into the portfolio. Um, but I mean, I would say that you know, by and far, you know, the big one at the moment is we've got cash.
0: Mm. Now, when you access more esoteric assets like the aircraft leasing and the ships, how do you do, you do it? Is it directly or via funds?
1: Um, we'll do that via, um, you know, by and large, listed securities. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, we we don't do private partnerships. Mm. We don't, you know, participate in, yeah, you know, unlisted securities. Um, you know, our strategy. Um, whilst we've run it at peak day for five years. Um, actually, you know, our strategy and philosophy we've managed since 2001. And we've always been conscious that, you know, if for for two reasons, Um, if we want to make a meaningful change uh, in our asset allocation, then we need to have the liquidity Mm -hmm. uh, in markets to do that. And secondly, when it certainly when it comes to perhaps some of our defined benefit uh, pension scheme clients, um, Yeah, most of them would like to get to buy out and should we do a good job for them? And they get to the point where they're fully funded and they say, right, we can go to buy out. They ring us and say, can we have our money back? And Mm. we've always wanted to be in a position where we could say, absolutely, thank you.
0: Yeah, so liquidity, a key concern then. Indeed. Yeah. Obviously, when you're looking at these underlying funds, I mean, what sort of things do you assess when you're looking and considering, you know, kind of liquidity and liquidity issues?
1: Uh, Okay, so look, first and foremost, we're we're not really a a manager of funds. Mm. Where we do own a fund, and it might be a PICTA fund or it might be something managed externally, if we think we Mm. can get uh, a better bang for our buck by doing that, you know, we want to own something that's big and liquid and we don't want to own so much of it that, we're going to cause a problem for us or indeed, you know, the other fund manager should we decide that we want to sell. That's been, you know, the way we've operated for, yeah, the last 20 years and I don't see any reason to change. Um, You know, we do all of the due diligence and take a pretty cautious stance on the amount of liquidity that we've had. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, we've seen some higher profile cases of Mm. late I'm not surprised and um, Mm. we've never wanted to be
0: in that position. No. So, I mean, do you favour any types of fund structures? Because obviously there's the argument that if you invest in liquid assets, whether it be property, aircraft leases or anything else, do it via a listed fund, a.k.a. an investment trust rather than an open-ended fund or or how, you know, what's your... Look, I mean, you,
1: you, so my, mm. my immediate answer mm. is, look, if you, if you own a closed-ended listed mm. structure like an investment trust, there's always going to be a price at which you can sell. Mm. Right Now, it might be at a big discount mm-hmm. to its net asset value, yeah. but you're going to be able to sell. It's more troublesome when you're in an open structure and where the manager might use his discretion to mm. gate or close to f- defend... Quite rightly, frankly, is other unit holders. Mm. So, um, you know, we're aware of that and, you know, be conscious of that. And as I say, if we're going to use an open-ended structure, you know, we'll limit, you know, we've got strong constraints in terms of how much of that we have. And we tend to work with the other manager to ensure that should we decide that we want to be able to sell, we're in a position to do so.
0: Okay, thank you, Andrew. A really interesting insight into mitigating downside via diversification and managing liquidity. That brings us to the end of today's show, but also have a look at this week's Investors Chronicle or the website at investorschronicle.co.uk for more on mitigating downside, diversifying your portfolio and funds focused on illiquid assets. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.